So I grew up in uh, New England, which is a great place to grow up for many reasons, not the least of which is that you get four distinct seasons. Transplanted here to Southern California almost 25 years ago, and uh, four seasons are a bit more elusive here in Southern California. But there's a a certain sense uh, of change in the weather, and uh, we're in the midst of what is my most favorite time of the year, and that is the fall. I really like the fall because the nights are cool, which makes sleeping good, and the days are warm. Makes it a little difficult to figure out what to do in the morning sometimes, right? One must uh, take several articles of clothing with them, from shorts to a jacket. But in any case, I, I really like the fall weather. There are other things I like about the fall as well. Not the least of which is I like October baseball. And uh, I like October baseball because that's when the playoffs happen. I don't like it as much this year as I like it in other years, seeing that the best team in baseball uh, came in last place uh, uh, this year. But in any case, I like fall baseball. I also like the fall because it's the startup of the new church calendar, the new program year. I enjoy the summer, and it's a little more laid back and so forth, but I really get fired up for the coming of the fall when the body gathers and uh, when I can finally figure out how many sheep we still have because uh, sometimes in the summer it's a bit difficult. So I like it when the fall and everybody's here and we're back and we're, we're pulling in the same direction again. I like that. But I think... Perhaps the thing I like most about the fall is that I arrive at the Gospels in my annual Bible reading. By the grace of God, Carol and I have been able to read together through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on an annual basis for more than 30 years. And God has transformed us through that process of faithfully reading and taking in the word of God. And typically, you know, there's that reading process, uh, the Old Testament takes a long time to get through. And then you, are, then you arrive at, at basically October and you hit the Gospels. And it's so exciting. I absolutely love reading the Gospels. I love spending time with Jesus. I love thinking more directly about Christ. I love being awed by him each and every time I read the Gospels. What he said, what he did. To contemplate. This one who is both God and man sent to dwell among us to die in our place to take the full wrath of God to extinguish it on behalf of his people drinking that bitter cup all the way to the last drop. 
I love spending time with Christ. You know, when I think about Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, one of the things that stands out is his healing ministry. As you read those four accounts, it's just over and over and over again. You, you encounter this one who has total power over disease. And the older I get, and the longer I live, and to see how sick this world really is, the more fired up I get about the one who banished disease and will someday banish it again. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, Matthew gives a, a summary in just a couple of verses. Turn there if you like or just listen. But Matthew gives a, a summary of Jesus' healing ministry during his 18 months of his greater Galilean campaign. This is how Matthew summarizes those 18 months. He says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they were brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. One Bible commentator reflecting on those words recorded for us by Matthew makes a really insightful statement, I think. He says Jesus, during that 18 months, essentially banished illness from Galilee. And when you think about it, it's not too hard to agree to that statement. The text indicates all went. And believe me, if you were sick, or you had a loved one who was sick, and you heard the news, you'd go. And if you went, he would heal you. He would heal you. But of his healing ministries, I think one that stands out is the healing of the blind. It is giving sight to the blind. It's an amazing display of the power of God. And I want to turn you this morning to Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, where we take it up. In our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. We arrive now at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29. 
And we have an account of another healing. And in particular, the healing of two blind beggars. Jesus is, is making his final approach to Jerusalem to die. The Passover is close at hand. And on his way up to Jerusalem to die, he heals a couple of beggars, a couple of blind beggars. And as we look at this account together this morning, this, this account of the healing of two blind beggars, there are some important lessons for us. Important lessons about, about blindness and healing. Blindness and healing in the ministry of Jesus. So that we will see clearly when it comes to this very, very important topic. So let's dig into the text. Beginning in verse 29, the first lesson is this. There is a point to this healing story. There is a point to the healing story. Matthew records, verse 29, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now, the city of Jericho is an ancient, ancient city. Some argue it is the oldest walled city known to man. There are many, many levels to the tell at Jericho. It has known civilization for thousands of thousands of years. It, and it is a city that is rich in biblical history. The city of Jericho lies seven miles north and west of the north of the entrance of the Jordan River into the Dead Sea and on the west side of that Jordan River. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a jewel. That's how it's been described. It's an oasis in the midst of a barren wilderness. That whole region around the Dead Sea is dry, dirty, and hot. And it is barren. Except for Jericho. Except for Jericho. Jericho has, has ample water. And so it's green, and it's, and it's lush, and, and it sits there just across the Jordan River. There's this beautiful emerald. It's located about 800 feet below sea level. When compared to the, to the city of Jerusalem, which is approximately 15 miles about southwest of Jericho, Jerusalem standing at an elevation of about 2,500 feet above sea level. The difference creates interesting climate variation. You can have snow in Jerusalem and shorts in Jericho. Makes it a great place to visit on a cold day. The area is lush. It's known for dates known for citrus fruit. 
It's known for balsam plants, which are used in antiquity to, to create medicine for the healing of the blind. And it is known for palm trees. In fact, another name for Jericho is the city of palms. The city of palms. As you know, Jericho was one of the fortified cities of Canaan. And in fact, it was the first city encountered by Joshua and the people of Israel when they crossed over the Jordan River from east to west to enter into the promised land. They encountered the walled and fortified city of Jericho. The city of Jericho fell before Joshua and the armies of Israel in the most spectacular fashion. Joshua needed not even and lift his sword, right? They, they merely shouted out and the walls fell down flat in front of them. God destroyed the city of Jericho as an object lesson to Joshua and to the armies of Israel that this was his war, that he would evict the Canaanites from Israel's homeland and he would deliver it to them. Oh, the song says Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, but it was really God who fought the battle of Jericho. Now, when you arrive in the time of the New Testament, there are actually or were actually two cities of Jericho, two cities. There was the old city of Jericho and the new city of Jericho, and they were located in close proximity to one another. The old city of Jericho was the one that had been destroyed under Joshua in about 1405 B.C. It had been rebuilt, the scripture tells us, about 500 years later by a guy who ended up losing two sons in the process. You remember that? And fulfillment of the prophecy of Joshua who had cursed whoever would rebuild this city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Or Jericho. Well, by about the second century BC, there was a there was another Jericho built, the new Jericho. This city was constructed as a, a winter residence for the Hasmonean kings of the period of the Maccabees, the Jewish kings. It was a great place to visit from Jerusalem when it was cold, damp, and rainy down to Jericho, fifteen miles away, and get out your flip flops and enjoy things. Now, Herod the Great came along, and uh, like everything else Herod touched, uh, he needed to beautify and enlarge and uh, glorify himself through it. And so that's exactly what Herod did in the new Jericho. He greatly expanded the palace there. He added along to it sunken gardens, guest houses, a Roman bath, and many, many public buildings. So the new Jericho was quite the place to go, quite the place. It was a wealthy city. It was a city that was seasonably pleasant. It was a it was an area that 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 was an abundance of balsam bushes, and so it was a gathering place for those who were blind and those in need of charity. This is the place to go. 
Beyond that, it, it's the place where the pilgrims coming down from Galilee in the north to, to celebrate the annual festivals of the nation of Israel would cross back over the Jordan River, through the city of Jericho, up the back of the Mount of Olives, and down and into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. So it's a great place to be if you, if you need money. If you want to beg, if you've been reduced by circumstances to that place where you, where you need to beg to put food in your mouth. And so as you might expect, when the, when the roads were seasonally clogged at this time of year with the Passover pilgrims, there were many, many blind beggars to be found in and around Jericho. And so Matthew gives us this account here, verse 30. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. They cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. And said, what do you want me to do for you? We're again indebted to the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, who record this event as well. And by virtue of, of their record of the event, we can gain some additional detail that helps us, I think, understand what was going on. Interestingly, Mark tells us in his account in Mark 10, he focuses on only one blind beggar. And Mark actually gives the man a name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Luke, in his account of this event, says that Jesus was approaching Jericho when one blind man called out to him. Notice that Matthew says that they were leaving Jericho, verse 29. So how do we put this together? Was there one or was there two? Were they leaving Jericho? Were they arriving at Jericho? Some people want to have a field day with this and, and say that there, you want evidence that the Bible's full of contradictions? There's your evidence. My answer is nonsense. Harmonizing these is a, is a very simple process. It's simply this. There were two beggars. That's what Matthew says. Two blind beggars. One of them, more prominent than the other, his name was Bartimaeus. Mark focuses on that individual, Luke, as well. Because this man was the more prominent of the two, highlights that. Luke says that they were entering Jericho. Matthew and Mark say they were leaving Jericho. That's simple. They were leaving old Jericho and entering new Jericho. That's not too hard to understand. So here they go. Jesus, the 12 disciples, the crowds, large crowds, see at verse 29, large crowd of Galilean pilgrims 
leaving the old city of Jericho along the road proceeding to the new city of Jericho. Luke tells us one of the beggars, he hears the commotion and he inquires as to what's happening. Again, Luke tells us, Luke 18, verse 37, the crowd tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And then the most amazing thing happens. These two beggars cry out for mercy. They call out. And notice what Matthew records for us, how they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd says, shut up. And they cry out all the more, even louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And it's at that point, Luke again tells us that Jesus stops. He stops and he commands that they be brought to him. Now it stands out, I think, immediately. The way they refer to Jesus is unique. I mean, think about this. Luke says they they inquire, what's the commotion going on? These, These blind beggars sitting by the side of the road. What's going on? They can't see. And the crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how the beggars address him. To the crowd, he's Jesus of Nazareth. The popular one. To the beggars, he is David's greater son. The messianic king. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Beyond that, when, when Jesus commands and, and they're brought before him, Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What would be the natural expectation? We need money. We need money. We're, we're poor. We're beggars. We, we will not eat tonight. If you do not give us help, have mercy on us. But that's not what they ask. They don't say we need money. Instead, they request that he do the humanly impossible. The humanly impossible. We want you to restore our sight. We're so used to reading these things. We, we don't stop and let that sink in. Hey, buddy, can you spare a dime, right? That we're used to. We want you to restore our sight. We want you to do what no man can do. We want to see. We want to see. Now, how did they even know? What to ask, who he was. It's an assumption here to be sure, but my assumption would be that they had heard about him. 
from the passing pilgrims. These are not two guys that, that, that you know, just fell off a turnip truck. The news about Jesus and his healing ministry recorded there earlier in Matthew in chapter 4 went out far and wide. So they've heard what he's done for others. They want him to do it for them. Beloved, that's bold faith. That is bold faith. In fact, Mark and Luke both record Jesus' words to them. Your faith has made you well. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Restore our sight. Take away our blind eyes. Verse 33, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. And moved with compassion, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. They regained their sight and they followed him. Moved with compassion, Matthew says. He he touched their eyes. And they see. And they see. Now, many have had their sight restored in the last couple of years. Matthew, make sure you understand that they followed him. They followed him. Now, I can't prove this. But I'm persuaded by the fact that Mark records the name of one of them, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, that for Mark and, and, and those readers of his gospel, those early readers of his gospel, that, that community to whom Mark ministered would have known who this man was. Otherwise, I see little purpose in identifying him and his Father, they followed the Messiah, not just in the, in the form of a popular healer as the crowds would follow him, but, but they became his disciples. They followed him. John MacArthur has a, a good thing to say on this. I'll read it to you here. He says, quote, the amazing thing about, the, about these two men was not their physical blindness, which was common in their day, but their spiritual sight, which is uncommon in any day. Physically, they could see nothing, but spiritually, they saw a great deal. Well said. Well said. What's the first lesson here? What's the point of the narrative? It's simply this. The the blind men saw Jesus for who he really was, the Messiah, and he healed them and they followed him. It's just that simple. Jesus opened their eyes and they followed him. 
There's another lesson here for us. I think it's in verse 34, or it's at least suggested by verse 34. The lesson is this. It has to do with the power of Jesus' healing. It has to do with the power of his healing. There's another important lesson coming out of this. It says in verse 34, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. We have uh, medical people in the congregation here. Very skillful medical people. I don't believe there's any of them that would suggest to you that they could do that. It touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Beloved, that's power. That is power. I'm persuaded that as we become more and more and more familiar with the gospel accounts and even the New Testament as a whole and the Acts of the Apostles, that we become less and less impressed, less and less impressed. We, we, we tend to pass over the amazing displays of supernatural power that are there for us in the pages of Scripture. We become used to it. Oh yeah, Jesus, he, you know, he's the guy who like heals people. So I thought it might be helpful just take a few minutes here and and maybe review a few of these healing ministries. Maybe we can maybe we can see them again with fresh eyes. Maybe we can be awed again at the power of this one, son of God, son of man. So I'll turn you back again to, uh, we'll, we'll just take you right back to Matthew 4, where we were a few minutes ago. Matthew 4, verses 23 and 24. I'm just going to quickly survey a few. There's certainly not time for an exhaustive study or review here, but let me, let me review a few with you. I'll make the point. What I want you to see here, verses 23 and 24, is I want you to see the use of the word every and all. Every and all. So Jesus is going throughout all Galilee. All Galilee. All Galilee. That's a big area. We're not talking about controlled settings. You come to him. He's going everywhere. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing every kind of disease. Now, every is a, is a word that describes every. It's not a selective word. It's an all-encompassing word. Every kind of disease, and just in case you missed it, every kind of sickness among the people. Every kind of disease, every kind of sickness going all throughout Galilee. And the news about in verse 24 spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him a few people who were sick. 
they brought to him, look at it, all who were ill, all suffering with various diseases and pains, all demoniacs, all epileptics, all paralytics. And he healed them. And he healed them. Why were there 5,000 people to be fed with a, with a boy's lunch of a few sardines and a couple of tortillas? Why did they follow him? They were told later there were plus men and, and uh, or excuse me, women and children, 5,000 men plus women and children, perhaps as many as 20,000 people. What were they doing there? They wanted their diseases healed. They wanted their sickness cared for. They wanted the lame to be restored. They wanted eyes to be made to see again, ears to be able to hear, tongues on loose, demons to be cast out, withered limbs to be restored, epileptics to be delivered. All of them, all of them. Listen, here's the point. Jesus healed every kind of disease among all who were brought to him. And there's not a doctor who wouldn't like to be able to do that. Chapter 8, verse 3. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I'd like to go back and re-preach that one again. That is so phenomenal. Phenomenal. Listen, if there's one thing you didn't do in ancient Israel, you didn't touch a leper. But he touches the leper and consumes his disease immediately. And the man is cleansed. The power, the holiness of Christ is is so concentrated. It reminds me of those commercials you know they have the they have the water with the dye in it you know and then they're doing the different detergents and you know one they drop it in and the water is murky and then they put the whatever one they're trying to sell you in and the water becomes what clear now, i don't know anything about detergents but i know this and jesus touched this leper he became clear he became clean He didn't defile Jesus. Jesus purified him. Not slowly, not progressively, immediately, immediately. Verse 32, same chapter. Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gadarenes, verse 28. There's a man brought to him, right? The demoniac. The one that, is, that has been possessed by, you know, what is your name? Legion, because there are so many of us. 
Verse 32. He said to them, that is the demons, go. And they came out and went into the swine and and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. By the way, just to kind of nail this down in your thinking, the, the casting out of demons is a, is a subset of a healing ministry. It is just a further demonstration and illustration of healing. That's what it is. He healed them by casting out demons. I won't go there, but you can just pencil these down and check them out yourself. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 makes the tie very carefully. It is a healing ministry. With a word. Be gone. Boom. They're gone. No incantations, no long process, you know. Boom. They're gone. Chapter 10. guess I'm getting there anyway. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 7. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. What do I want you to see from this? I want you to see simply this. Jesus gave them power and authority to do what he could do. Why do I want you to see that? Because it's simply this. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. There was no struggle, no challenge, didn't diminish Jesus in any way to give to them this ability. He gave miraculous power to his 12 disciples. Chapter 12, verse 13. Oh, I love this one. This is the, the man who's in the synagogue, right, who has the withered hand. So the hand is all, you know, shriveled up and deformed by birth or disease. We don't really know. And the Pharisees, you know, they're, they're looking to catch him on the Sabbath doing something. You can't do anything on the Sabbath, right? Or you'll violate their ridiculous legalistic system. So he, he calls the man forward in front of everybody, and he, he says, stretch out your hand. Oh, I just love this. So he stretches out his hand, and it's returned to normal. Now, that is so cool. He didn't touch the guy's hand. He didn't speak to the guy's you know, hand, be hand be healed. He just says, stretch out your hand. It's healed. That's power. It's power. It's immediate. It's immediate. Verse 22, the demon-possessed man, same chapter. He's blind and mute. Jesus heals him with a word. Heals him. Oh, I'll give you a couple more. Take you over to John's gospel. I'll take you here because it's a good place for further illustration. Chapter 4 of John's gospel, verse 46. 
Jesus, uh, therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And that's, anyway, he made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, something you need to know. Something you need to know. The uh, distance from uh, Cana of Galilee to Capernaum is about 25 miles. The boy's back home about 25 miles away. The father comes to to beg Jesus, right, to do something for my son. Verses 50 to 54, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lived, or lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Listen. Jesus heals completely, immediately, with a word, with a touch, a long distance. Long distance healing. Now that's got some amazing medical possibilities. You know what I'm saying? You just call your doctor on the phone, you know, and they just like, just speak through the phone. That's all it'll take. Long distance stuff. It's incredible. I'll give you one more. Chapter 5, verse 9. Well, verse 5 first, just to set the scene. It's the healing of the pool of Bethesda. Verse 5, there was a man who had been ill for 38 years. He was so debilitated by his illness, he was unable to, to get down to the stirring of the waters of the pool of Bethesda. Verse 9. Jesus speaks to him, right? Uh, verse 8. Get up. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. By the way, again, I can't help but be reminded of Peter and John at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3 with the man who'd been there, right? And Peter says, gold and silver have I none, but what I have we give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the guy dances his way into the temple. Beloved, that is power. That is power. That is authority. Jesus healed all who came to him with a word or a touch. He healed them instantly. He healed them completely. He healed them permanently. He healed them in a verifiable way. And the diseases from which he healed people included blindness, disease, deformity, demonization, and even death. That stands out. That stands out. Faith was present in those who were healed, at least at this level. They believed enough to come. Usually they did not possess saving faith. That's what makes the story here, the two blind beggars stand out. Most of the time, they did not possess saving faith. Most of the time, they did not become his disciples following his healing of them. 
How do I know that is true? Because what Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 20 to 24, where Jesus calls down judgment on the cities of northern Galilee for their refusal to believe in the face of the overwhelming evidence of his miraculous ministry among them. He compares them unfavorably to Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, to Tyre and Sidon. They received the benefits, and yet they did not believe. His healing ministry was completely different than anything the nation of Israel had ever seen or known. Completely different, radically different. In John chapter 9, verse 32, we won't turn there, but, but the, the, the man that he healed there, he's, when, the, when the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders are saying, this man cannot be from God, right? And that guy says, well, gee, that's awful funny because we know that, um, that God only hears those who are on his team, basically. And then the guy says this, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born Blind, born blind, never. Why? Because it would require you to create fully functioning eyes. And only God can do that. His healing ministry was unlike anything anything that had ever been seen or known among the people of God. And it served a purpose. It was not random. It served a a unique purpose in, in the eternal plan of God. And that takes me to my third lesson for you this morning. Hang in with me now. You got to think with me. Through a few things. There were several purposes for the healing ministry of Jesus. And these purposes are all interconnected. Okay, They are interconnected purposes. I want to look at three of them very quickly with you. Three of them. The time that remains. Number one. Jesus' healing ministry was an expression of the compassion of God for his people. This healing ministry was an expression of the compassion of God for his people who have been ravaged by sin, Satan, and a cold-hearted religious system. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Messiah had compassion on them. Second, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a coming messianic kingdom. It is very clear and it is all over the Old Testament. They spoke of a coming messianic kingdom, a coming messianic age, an age, a time, a a place of, of peace and prosperity that would reign upon this sin ravaged earth. A place where, the, where, where sin and its consequences would be removed. 
where the people of God would know, would know rest for body and soul. They longed for it from way back in the garden when God had promised the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Now, specifically, the prophets progressively, as they write and time passes, they add detail to the emerging picture of the coming messianic age, the the age to come the kingdom of Messiah. And specifically in describing that kingdom, the prophet Isaiah says something very important. In Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 5, he says, in that day, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Why did Jesus heal the blind? Why did Jesus restore hearing to the deaf? It was an expression of the compassion of God, to be sure. But it was beyond that. It was a foretaste. It was a glimpse of the kingdom to come. The kingdom to come. It was a mark of divine authenticity setting him out as the long-anticipated king. Remember his message, right? It began with John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When John was in prison, Jesus took over a public preaching ministry. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that is, it is this close in the person of the king, then we should expect to see a glimpse, a down payment of this great time. And that's exactly what he did. Everywhere Jesus went, it was was like he was dragging the kingdom of heaven with him. And he would kind of open the door and a little of it would kind of leak out onto people. Now, am I making this stuff up? No, I'm not making this stuff up because that's exactly how Jesus responds. And I'll turn you to Matthew 11. You're not going anywhere, are you? Matthew 11, where John the Baptist is imprisoned and he's suffering in a crisis of faith himself because the Messiah is not living up to exactly the expectations as the way John thought it was going to work out. So he sends his his disciples with word to Jesus, and he asks them a question. Verse 2, now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He responds to John by quoting Isaiah 35. He says, if you're having trouble to figure out whether I'm the one, go back to the Old Testament, go back to the prophet Isaiah, read it again. Look around, see what I do, and believe, and believe. 
Beloved, Jesus' healing miracles were a tasting of the power of the age to come. That's how the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5. They tasted the power of the age to come. It was a sign that should have caused people to believe. Should have. But it didn't. It takes me to my third, as I say, interconnected reason for these miracles. Here it is. When Adam fell, when Adam fell from his lofty position as as the highest creation of God in stewardship over the creation of God, the, the king of creation, with the queen at his side, when he fell, he surrendered to Satan the role as ruler of this world. He gave it up. He lost it. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and following, at the temptation of Jesus, these words are recorded for us. And he, that is Satan, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if You worship me, it shall be yours. Get out of here. But notice he doesn't doesn't contradict the statement. It has been handed over to me. A prince of the power of the air. The ruler of the kingdoms of this world. In open rebellion Against God. Now listen. Satan controls the kingdoms of this world and and he is not going to easily give them up. So when the kingdom of heaven was at hand, in the person of the king, all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose. The demonic activity Went through the roof. The forces of of wickedness were unleashed to oppose Jesus. To keep Messiah from gaining his throne. To thwart the prophecy of Daniel 2, Daniel 7. Satan's not going to give it up easy. And he pulled out all the stops. There was a massive increase in demonic activity. And that massive increase in demonic, demonic activity, it necessitated Jesus' extensive healing ministry, which included the casting out of demons. Think with me. You read those Gospels. Have you ever paused to wonder to yourself, how is it that everybody knew when someone had a demon? Believer or unbeliever, Jew or Gentile. They just knew. They just knew. 
Listen, Jesus says it this way himself in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 29. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Unless he first binds the strong man. Scripture indicates that demonic activity is going to go through the roof at another point in time. You know when that is? That is during the seven years that we call the tribulation, right? Prior to the return of the king to establish his messianic throne. All the stops will come out. Satan will muster his entire demonic army in opposition to the coming one. Read the book of Revelation and see it poured out. And think with me, what is the first thing the king does when he establishes his kingdom here on earth? He binds Satan for a thousand years. For a thousand years. Unless one bind the strong man. There is no way to loot his kingdom. What can we conclude? What do we conclude from all of this? Probably many things, but here's one. God in his mercy... And God is rich in mercy. God in his mercy and his compassion, he providentially heals people today through intermediate means. He is constantly healing people. You go to the doctor, you go to the, to the nurse, you go to the pharmacist, right? And they prescribe treatment and you, and, you, and you follow the prescription of treatment and frequently God heals. In some of the most amazing ways. People are, they are, people are able to do things surgically today that just a, a decade or two ago was unimaginable. Listen, it is the providence of God. It is the providence of God. It is the display of the mercy and grace of God. Because often the ones that can do it are the ones who would blaspheme him. And yet God gives such ability. Does God heal? Absolutely. Regularly. Providentially. Through intermediate means. Occasionally. Occasionally, God heals without intermediate means. Sometimes, sometimes in response to the prayers of his people. We call that a miracle. Listen, if miracles are happening all the time, they are by definition not a miracle. They are rare. They are rare. Must have been something to live in that time period, don't you think? Everywhere he goes, everyone who's sick, no matter what's the problem, he heals them. But that's not the way it is today. Your own life is a testimony to that reality. It is not the way it is. And there's a reason. The kingdom is not here. 
The kingdom is not here. If the kingdom was here, then we would have access to the benefits of the kingdom. And one of the benefits of the kingdom is the banishment of sickness and disease. So as long as you call the doctor, every time you pick up the phone and call the doctor and they put you on hold, you just repeat to yourself, the kingdom is not here. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how we long, how we long for Messiah's kingdom. This life is hard. The ravages of sin everywhere. We are bent and twisted and deformed by it. Body and mind and soul and emotion. The creation itself, it groans, waiting its deliverance. Oh God, what a day. What a day will come. You have made us your children. We are citizens of that coming kingdom. You have opened our blind eyes. We have seen the beauty and the glory of the Messiah. We have fled to him in faith. We are, we are following him. We are his disciples. And we live between the ages. And how we hope, how we long, how we pray. The stone cut without hands would smash the kingdoms of this world. That it would become a mountain that fills the earth. The kingdom of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our heart longs for these things. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.